Presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Ofer Nyman, a member of the Israeli group Boycott from Within, who talks about the importance of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement to challenge Israel's new ultranationalist, extreme far-right government. John Pfeffer. Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies, who examines what motivates far-right voters and how pro-democracy activists can craft arguments and policies to win them over. And Chip Gibbons of the group Defending Rights and Dissent, who explains why he believes the U.S. extradition proceedings and prosecution of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange poses a grave threat to press freedom. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. On Christmas Day, China launched over 70 fighter jets and seven ships toward the contested Taiwan Strait. It was China's largest military operation in the waters off Taiwan since former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the island in August. The display of force that China called a joint strike drill was an expression of Beijing's anger over increased U.S.-Taiwan military cooperation that was included in the $858 billion Pentagon budget passed by Congress and signed by President Biden. Two days later, Taiwan President Chai Ing-wen announced the extension of compulsory military service in the Taiwan Army, from four months to one year, and more rigorous training. This was a long-expected move as Taiwan has been modernizing its self-defense force in case of an attack from Beijing. At China's 20th Communist Party Congress in October, President Xi Jinping warned Taiwan that the wheels of history are rolling on toward China's reunification and the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. The recently approved Pentagon spending bill gives President Biden new powers to transfer U.S. weapons to Taiwan as well as military grants worth $10 billion over the next five years in the event of a Chinese invasion. Hidden in the details of the $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill signed by President Biden, wealthy Americans won new perks in stashing tax-free funds into retirement savings plans. The American Prospect reports it was a huge win for Wall Street asset managers like Vanguard and Fidelity. It comes as the middle class are facing a retirement crisis since half of all Americans do not have retirement accounts. The SECURE Act 2.0, passed three years ago by the House Ways and Means Committee, chaired by Massachusetts Democrat Richard Neal, expanded tax breaks for the wealthy. New York University tax professor Daniel Hemmel called the bill a deeply cynical, deficit-expanding giveaway. The new law pushed back the date when savers must start drawing down their accounts from age 72 to 75, granting them three more years of tax-free growth. For decades, wealthy Americans have seen exponential asset growth in tax-free private retirement accounts. 
Meanwhile, Social Security will face a crisis by 2035 unless swift action is taken by Congress. If no changes are made to Social Security, reserves are expected to run out by 2035, likely meaning that Americans would receive only 80% of their expected benefits. Yet, over the past two Congresses, members have been more interested in giving private retirement accounts more tax preferences. During the explosion of racial justice protests across the U.S. after the murder of George Floyd in May 2020, Des Moines, Iowa was one of the few cities to fire school resource officers who are members of the local police department, removing them from the school system. The city replaced them with restorative practices facilitators who focus on peer-to-peer conflict resolution. The newly hired professionals have close contact with urban students and focus on preventing flare-ups from mushrooming into violence. In These Times magazine reports that restorative practices were developed in Oakland, California in 2005, but draw upon the thousands of years old practice of peacemaking and healing by indigenous communities around the world. With savings from the broken police department contract, high schools in Des Moines began using restorative practices with hired staff in 2018. In the recent school year, a survey found Des Moines students' sense of physical safety rose and relationships with peers improved. According to Anne Gregory, a Rutgers professor and one of the nation's leading restorative practice experts, the methods genuinely reduce racial disparities in suspensions and expulsions while keeping kids out of and away from the legal system, all while enhancing student development. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As the most extremist, ultranationalist, far-right government in Israel's history took power in the new year, two groups inside Israel that support Palestinian rights were joined by progressive Jewish organizations in the U.S., Germany, the U.K., South Africa, Australia, France, Ireland, and Canada to issue an open letter denouncing the new government. Under the headline, Fascism Strengthens Israeli Apartheid, the masks are off with a far-right movement in the Israeli government. The letter stated, quote, We do not draw a line between the old and the new. Successive Israeli governments have never created a state for all its inhabitants and citizens. The Palestinian people have always been excluded, diminished, and considered infiltrators and strangers in their land since 1948. The letter called for support for the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, or BDS, movement a nonviolent campaign initiated by Palestinian civil society groups advocating for Palestinians' right to return to their lands, the safeguarding of the lives of Israeli Jews who resist the targeting of Palestinians, and the protection of all LGBTQ plus individuals whose rights are already being targeted by the far-right movement. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Ofer Nyman, a Jewish-Israeli citizen and member of the group Boycott from Within, 
one of the signatories of the letter, that represents Israelis who support the BDS movement. Here he talks about the importance of that campaign and why the new extremist government may actually weaken support for the occupation and Israeli apartheid. Our role as Israeli citizens is to, first and foremost, to legitimize the campaign, to tell the world that there are also some Israeli citizens who support this campaign. Unfortunately, as a whole, opposition to occupation and apartheid within Israel is not strong enough, so we cannot simply end apartheid directly for now through the Israeli parliament or demonstrations. But we can, those of us, a minority that supports Palestinian rights, we can tell the world that this is something to support. Ofer Nyman, you've talked about how past Israeli governments have been extremely repressive of the Palestinians and opposed to the idea of a Palestinian state. So do you think that maybe this extreme right-wing government might actually open a space for both Palestinians and Israelis like yourselves who support the Palestinians? I was thinking you would be more repressed and it would be hard to even run your organization within Israel. You don't think that's going to be the case? So regarding Palestinians, I don't think this government is going to make life easier for them. If anything, perhaps this government is going to make opposition to Israeli policies a bit easier, especially in the U.S., because the Israel's liberal supporters in the U.S., they are now hard-pressed to come up with good reasons to stand behind the Israeli government. There's also a lot of homophobia coming from senior figures in this Israeli government. So this whole idea of trying to promote Israel as this cool, hip democracy, which everybody should like because it's a tolerant, liberal place, this marketing campaign becomes harder with this new government. So opposition to Israel's occupation and apartheid may become stronger now, and and, and opposing uh, Israel's policies may be easier. Regarding our status as Israeli dissidents, there's an ongoing process of, of, of trying to restrict our freedom, but overall, we're still quite privileged. We have free speech here. I can say, for example, that Benjamin Netanyahu is a war criminal and nobody will arrest me. Palestinians don't have that free speech. Whether this government will try to clamp down on Jewish-Israeli dissidents, I'm not so sure. I think they want to be careful because there is a fairly wide coalition of Jewish Israelis, including those who are not necessarily strongly opposed to the occupation, who are already aligning against this government, for example, based on these homophobic statements. Netanyahu already has enough or too much on his plate from this perspective, trying to market this new government as, as, as a government that is reasonable, not as a government of fundamentalists. So for us, for Jewish-Israeli dissidents here, I don't think things are going to worsen all that much. For Palestinians, things are not going to get better. But hopefully the world, more and more people across the world, and especially in the U.S., will realize what's going on here and we'll see um, stronger opposition. Obviously, supporting the BDS campaign is crucial, and especially supporting the BDS campaign in the U.S. Another ongoing campaign is the campaign against the so-called IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. IHRA means International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. 
And this is a very disturbing definition of anti-Semitism. And again, of course, it is very important to, to counter anti-Semitism and overall anti-Semitism seems to be on the rise in the U.S., mostly from the circles of white nationalism and, and the MAGA and QAnon crowd. It's very important to, to counter that. But this IHRA definition of anti-Semitism seeks to silence criticism of Israel. For example, according uh, to the examples attached to this definition, saying that Israel is a racist endeavor amounts to anti-Semitism. And this is something we're unwilling to accept. We care deeply about anti-Semitism, but our own universal values of human rights and our Jewish heritage have led us to this campaign to end occupation and apartheid here. And we do think that Israel overall is a racist endeavor. It's an apartheid state. And, you know, how dare they try to silence people, including us, who are calling Israel out on, on these uh, racist policies. And this will be a very prominent campaign in 2023. That was Ofer Nyman, a member of the Israeli group Boycott from Within. Learn more about the Boycott Divestment and Sanctions campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. While most of the extremist right-wing candidates, former President Donald Trump endorsed for the U.S. Senate, House, and Secretary of State offices were defeated in the 2022 midterm election, many others won their races. On January 3, 2023, Republicans took control of the U.S. House of Representatives, the same party where 139 representatives and eight senators voted to overturn Joe Biden's presidential election victory on January 6, 2021, just hours after a violent insurrection resulted in the deaths of five people and hundreds of injuries to Capitol Police. The more than 150 GOP election deniers who won seats in the 118th House exceed the 139 House Republicans who voted to promote Trump's big lie on January 6th, now constituting a little more than one-third of all House members. While many democracy defender activists were pleased that the predicted Republican midterm red tsunami did not come to pass, it's also true that many members of the Republican Party continue to embrace white supremacy and an authoritarian ideology that has not been defeated and still attracts support and votes for millions of Americans. Your reporter spoke with author John Pfeffer, Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies, who examines what motivates far-right voters and how progressive and pro-democracy activists can craft arguments and policies to win them over. Well, I think the threat, in fact, is greater after the midterm elections. Uh, obviously, a number of the Republican moderates, or so-called moderates, those who, for instance, uh, considered impeaching Trump, um, many of them were voted out, replaced by people who embrace the MAGA line, the, the uh, stolen election line. Um, and especially at a local level, we've seen a kind of concerted effort by um, the far right within the Republican Party, kind of urged on by Steve Bannon and his associates, to really take over the lowest levels of power, you know, and 
school boards, for instance, uh, and certainly in uh, state um, senates and uh, houses. Um, and that is a very significant concern. I mean, if you take a look at Arizona, for instance, in Arizona, of course, we had some prominent losses for the far right. Uh, Carrie Lake lost in her attempt to become governor. Uh, Blake Masters lost in his attempt to uh, take a Senate seat. Um, so we had some prominent losses, but and that's good in terms of the overall health of U.S. democracy. Um, but at a local level, we saw a number of real kind of crazy folks. I mean, folks who embrace the QAnon conspiracy, uh, folks certainly who uh, embrace the big lie of stolen elections. Um, these folks were elected in many cases by rather wide margins. And that, I think, is the real concern that we have to face uh, moving forward. And that is the the way that the far right has institutionalized itself within the Republican Party at the grassroots and not just at the grass tops. In years past, it seems that the Democratic Party and the quote-unquote liberal agenda was tone-deaf to the many complaints and grievances of families that were seeing their horizons diminish, the futures for their children diminish, and it seemed like the Democratic Party was ignoring the economic casualties of globalization, as you've been talking about. And Bill Clinton, I think, was a, a great example of this, the quote-unquote new Democrat, a third-way Democrat. And he exemplified the austerity and embrace of Reagan economics in large part that fed into a lot of the anger across the country, especially of white working families. I'm wondering... Do you see changes on the horizon with the influence of Bernie Sanders and of how Democratic Socialist and the path that Joe Biden has taken uh, since he took office two years ago? Do we see some kind of page turning here on this embrace of neo-economic policy? That's a really important question. And, you know, a lot of people have this question. I mean, they, they ask, well, why is the far right winning votes on an economic agenda that's tailored to the disadvantaged, the folks who have fallen behind economically. Isn't that ordinarily the constituency that the left appeals to, uh, either a social democratic party or left wing of a democratic party here in the United States? Why is the far right so successful in reaching out to that constituency? And I think you've put your finger on it, uh, that many of the parties of the center left, whether you're talking about the Democratic Party of Bill Clinton uh, in the 1990s or the Socialist Party in France of, of Mitterrand or the Social Democratic Party uh, in Sweden, these parties basically abandoned that segment of the voting public. And now we're seeing maybe, maybe uh, a kind of a awakening of, you know, the left uh, in the form of Bernie Sanders, for instance, in the United States, and there Lula again in Brazil, managing to win a squeaker uh, over a Trump-like candidate in Jair Bolsonaro. We're beginning to see, I think, uh, a recognition that the left cannot take this constituency for granted, and definitely 
some of the policies that the Biden administration pushed through. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act certainly includes a number of measures that are directly um, targeting uh, the most disadvantaged economically segments of uh, the country. Uh, even the Biden administration is, I think, waking up to this as well. That was John Pfeffer, Director of Foreign Policy and Focus at the Institute for Policy Studies and author of the article, The Right is Crazy Like a Fox. Find a link to his article and related analysis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who is battling extradition from Britain to the U.S., where he's wanted on criminal charges, has submitted an appeal to the European Court of Human Rights. Assange has been charged by U.S. authorities for WikiLeaks' publication of hundreds of thousands of classified Pentagon documents and diplomatic cables in 2010 and 2011 that exposed U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan and embarrassing diplomatic abuses. In June 2012, Assange took refuge in Ecuador's London embassy and remained there for seven years to avoid extradition to Sweden to face sexual assault charges that were later dropped. After Assange was evicted from Ecuador's embassy in April 2019, he was arrested by British police and remains in Belmarsh Prison in London. On December 8th, more than 20 press freedom Civil Liberties and International Human Rights Groups sent an open letter to the U.S. Justice Department calling for the charges against Assange to be dropped out of concern that the prosecution of the WikiLeaks founder under the Espionage Act would, quote, set a harmful legal precedent and deliver a damaging blow to press freedom. Your reporter spoke with Chip Gibbons, policy director with Defending Rights and Dissent, one of the groups signing the letter who explains why he believes the prosecution of Julian Assange poses a grave threat to investigative journalism and freedom of the press. So the United States is currently trying to extradite Julian Assange to the United States for an 18-count indictment. 17 of the counts are brought under the Espionage Act. This marks the first time a publisher of truthful information has ever been indicted under the Espionage Act. All 17 of those charges stem from information that was released between 2010 and 2011 that Chelsea Manning gave to WikiLeaks and that WikiLeaks worked in conjunction, oftentimes with mainstream news sources like The New York Times and The Guardian, uh, sometimes also with more independent ones like The Nation magazine, to publish stories based off of and release. WikiLeaks has done a lot of releases over the years, but the charges all stem from these Chelsea Manning ones. They are the Iraq war logs, the rules of engagement, the State Department cables, and one-third of the charges are the detainee assessment briefs about Guantanamo Bay detainees. So this is all information that was in the public interest. The 18th charge is a conspiracy to commit computer intrusion charge, and it's shifted over time throughout the prosecution what they're actually alleging, 
But it's worth pointing out that the United States government is not alleging Assange successfully hacked government documents. They allege he was in some sort of conspiracy. Some of the evidence of the conspiracy at this point is things like helping Edward Snowden apply for asylum, the theory being that by doing this, he would incite other people to go out and leak classified documents. It's it's very troubling as well, but it's not as troubling precedent-wise as the Espionage Act indictment. Originally, a district judge, which is called a DJ in the United Kingdom, which always throws me off, uh, ruled against Julian Assange's press freedom arguments, but ruled that it would be oppressive to extradite him to the U.S. because of the condition of U.S. prisons. This was overturned by a higher court, and the U.K. Supreme Court refused to take the case. That opened up the opportunity for Assange's defense to file what's called a cross-appeal. That means they're now appealing the part of the judge's decision that denied the press freedom grounds. They've also filed an appeal before the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, The European Court of Human Rights is one of the most successful international human rights bodies in the world, in part because its decisions are binding. I cannot think of any other sort of similar international court system that has binding decisions. It's not part of the EU. It's part of the Council of of Europe. So even with Brexit, uh, the UK is still part of it. Obviously, the European Court of Human Rights has been a sort of bet noir for the Tories in the UK for, for decades, and there's always discussions of, of leaving it or nullifying it or, or whatever. But for the time being, they have the opportunity to file a binding uh, ruling liberating Julian Assange. And it's also worth pointing out that the human rights counselor or advisor or whatever it's called for the, for the Council of Europe has publicly opposed the extradition of Julian Assange as an affront to human rights. Chip, Australia's Labour Party Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, who just took office in May, has uh, been reported to have staked out a position in Australia calling for an end to the U.S. prosecution of Julian Assange, who is an Australian citizen. I'm wondering if you think the Biden administration may be looking for an off-ramp of this prosecution, given its controversy. And a lot of the attention will bring to U.S. double standards on freedom of the press. Yeah, I mean, if I was the Biden administration, I'd be looking for an off-ramp. But they did have an off-ramp already, right? Trump brought this prosecution during the Trump White House. A British court rejected Assange's extradition, not on press freedom grounds, but on uh, extras would be oppressive on the grounds, and the Biden administration chose to appeal that decision in the UK courts. Um, so I don't really know what they're doing. They should be looking for an off-ramp. This certainly gives them one. Uh, the Australian prime minister joins a number of international leaders, including the president of Mexico, the president of Brazil, the parliament of Germany, uh, in calling for the U.S. to end this prosecution. I mean, there's a lot of opposition throughout not just Australia, but Western Europe and Latin America, where this is viewed as the U.S., you know, extraterritorially pursuing one of its critics. Imagine if Russia was doing this to a Australian citizen who had published bad things about Putin and was detained in Belarus. That was Chip Gibbons, policy director with the group Defending Rights and Dissent. Learn more about the U.S. prosecution of Julian Assange and the threat to press freedom by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org.
listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WTND in Macomb, Illinois, KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, Palares Radio in Pala, California, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.